Welcome to Practically Healthy by Dr. Melina. I'm your host, Dr. Melina Jampolis, and I'm a board-certified physician nutrition specialist. And I started this podcast to take the latest science and really help you figure out what you should do, can do, and eventually will do when it comes to food, fitness, and everything that's involved with helping you become the best version of yourself. I'm so excited about my guest today. We actually met like 10 years ago, maybe through a mutual friend, um, Dr. Boyana Yankovic Weatherly. It was an internist in Los Angeles, and we were introduced through, through a mutual friend. And then she moved to New York and, and blossomed into integrative medicine and all sorts of really interesting things and has had tremendous experiences. And I've been really thrilled and impressed to watch how her career is involved. So I'm super excited to talk to her today. We're going to be getting into some really interesting topics, I think, for a lot of listeners, specifically thyroid disease. But Boyana, welcome. First of all, welcome. It's wonderful to see your beautiful face. And we're talking offline too. For those of you, you should start following her on Instagram. She's also a professional ballroom or an amateur ballroom dancer started during the pandemic. So, you know, practicing what she preaches in terms of staying active and keeping the brain active in the body. So um, I love that. It's my favorite thing. But anyways, welcome to Practically Healthy. I'm so happy to have you here. Thank you so much. It's such a pleasure to be here. It's so good to see you. And I'm so excited to have this conversation. Yes. Uh, so tell us a little bit about kind of why you you transition from just traditional internal medicine, how we were trained um, and, and what your what your practice is really like now. Absolutely. Yes. So as you mentioned, I went down the traditional path of um, going into residency training after medical school, did my internal medicine residency, and I practiced as a primary care physician when we met in LA. Um, I think it was really a combination of personal and professional experiences that ultimately led me to decide that I need to do something differently. I need to educate myself on what are the other modalities that are maybe underutilized or that we're not using at all that could support my patients, especially those with chronic conditions or individuals with multiple comorbidities or individuals that are just trying to support themselves in a more holistic manner, where maybe medications are part of their management, but they really want to explore nutritional modalities, mind-body modalities, and better understand how is stress impacting me? How are uh, endocrine disruptors maybe that I'm coming into contact impacting me? How can I reduce that burden? Um, what else can I do in terms of supplements or herbs? We know that there is um, a huge rise in the use of supplements, but not all of them are evidence-based and not all of them are utilized necessarily at the doses that they're studied at, right? They're not FDA regulated. So there are a lot of questions and really a lot of opportunities both for physicians to be more educated and better understand this space, but also for us to pass that knowledge on to our patients and to empower them to better understand how they can in this more kind of comprehensive way, support themselves. And really with me, in terms of kind of the personal experiences um, uh, aspect, it really first started when I was pregnant. And I found that um, I, I I really had a lot of, there, there were just a lot of uncertainties in terms of pregnancy and my babies were measuring too large. Um, I had the one after the other in residency. It's a whole other, other story. There were a lot of stressors. And essentially, I found that I needed 
better modalities to both manage my stress, to manage my busy life as a medical resident, as well as a mom to be, um, as well as to manage some maybe pregnancy higher risk factors with these large babies and how I kind of wanted um, my, my path to be. And so in that process, I started working with a prenatal chiropractor, with an acupuncturist, uh, with a prenatal yoga instructor. And really, that was kind of my first introduction to the possibilities of working with practitioners, number one, who are empowering and who are really allowing me to use my my own intuition to tune into my own body and to have the confidence that my body knows how to heal. My body knows how to do the right thing. Um, and it's really about providing the right tools, the right setting and so forth. Um, and then down the road as well, I developed um, uh, uh, autoimmune thyroiditis. I have Hashimoto's. It's one of the topics that's very near and dear to my heart. And so in just doing a lot of my own research for my patients and for myself, I realized, wow, we're really not utilizing um, everything that we could be, you know? Yeah, no, I think that's... Um... I think that's so fascinating. And and one of the things that you said early on, you know, the fact that, I mean, for me, it's so frustrating because over my career, you know, supplements have been so dismissed by the medical community. We're, we're so quick to prescribe medications um, and and supplements. And, and certainly, you know, my passion is nutrition, which has not even been remotely acknowledged, but we definitely, you know, everybody is so against supplements and and the, one of the problems, I think, is that they're held, they're, well, they're not as regulated like medications, but they're held to a standard that medications are. And I don't think that's right, because in many cases, these things are natural and it's more nuanced and that sort of thing. And um, but I love I love your journey. So let, let's jump right in. So because I think Hashimoto's and, and thyroid disease in general for women, I mean, what are the statistics? It's it's very, very common. And, uh, you know, there's a lot of things that we should know about it. Absolutely. Yeah. So it's estimated to some form of thyroid condition is actually estimated to affect one in eight women. Um, and it's five to eight times more common in women than men. Um, and it's not uncommon for it to occur at, it can certainly occur at various stages of a woman's lifetime, but it's not uncommon for us to, to first see thyroid antibodies being positive and then over time, as we see that decline in thyroid function, we start to see some of the changes in thyroid testing, which we'll definitely discuss because that's such a big part of, and, and one of the ways in which my practice has evolved in terms of what thyroid tests am I ordering? What am I looking for? Um, and that kind of thing. But it, it, it certainly affects a lot of women. And the problem is that because some of the symptoms of Hashimoto's, which is essentially an autoimmune thyroid condition when, where our body attacks itself or it attacks our thyroid gland, because some of the symptoms of underactive thyroid are so vague and can also stem from other healthcare conditions too, it's really hard to pin it down unless we correlate the symptoms with the appropriate lab work and make that connection. Um, so maybe I'll kind of just dive into what are some of the common symptoms? Yeah, I think that's really important because I really think that could empower. I know what you're going to say, so I'm looking forward to And there's probably more that I'm missing, but I think that could be very empowering because I think our medical system is too much geared towards just treating numbers and not people. And so I'm very interested yeah. to hear kind of what you say and, and attributing some of these symptoms just to being a busy mom or pregnant or perimenopausal or whatever it is. But let, let's go with some of the common symptoms. 
Absolutely. I agree with you. Yeah. So some of the common symptoms, one of the first things that I hear from people is fatigue. And again, fatigue can stem from a number of other things, right? If we're talking about reproductive age women, it could be iron deficiency anemia because they have blood loss every month. Um, it could, of course, anemia and iron deficiency can occur due to other causes as well. But so when, you know, when one first starts to have this symptoms, it's important to do a broad workup and then determine, is it the thyroid? Is it something else? It could be, again, a whole host of other conditions. I'm not going to go through the whole differential of every single symptom, but um, it's important to acknowledge that some of the symptoms can really apply to a number of different conditions. So one of the biggest ones being fatigue, you know, I'm feeling really sluggish. My exercise tolerance isn't quite what it used to be. It's hard to get out of bed. Um, I'm feeling kind of down and depressed. A lot of the times, those are some of the symptoms I hear. It can also be weight gain or just inability to lose weight in the setting of making the appropriate, you know, dietary and lifestyle changes. And again, this can also be another kind of very complicated area to unpack because this can of course, be from a number of other metabolic dysfunction issues, whether that's insulin resistance um, and, and so on and so forth. So um, fatigue and weight gain, I would say, are probably the most common symptoms that people would present to me for. What's interesting, too, though, and, and we'll get into some of the studies of normal thyroid function tests and whatnot. What's interesting to me is that every individual seems to have their own set point at what thyroid on um, hormone levels and what TSH, which is thyroid stimulating hormone, which we'll talk about, they feel normal, so to speak. Um, and it's so interesting to me how some individuals can be very sensitive to those changes, whether we see a change because we started a thyroid hormone medication or whether we see a change because we're seeing a natural progression of their condition. Um, I've definitely seen very high variation of you know, people not being symptomatic whatsoever and being diagnosed on lab tests and people being symptomatic and having maybe just a TSH that's slightly off. So I think that's important to acknowledge as well, because when I first started practicing primary care, uh, you know, what we were taught and where the evidence seemed to be pointing was that, um, look, in the setting of normal thyroid hormone levels, if TSH is under 10, there's really not a strong indication to treat. If TSH is above 10, then we really should be treating, unless, of course, in pregnancy where, where those ranges are much stricter. Um, but now there's, I think, a greater acknowledgement, not just from the integrative and functional medicine community, but also endocrinologists and other internists that, that we actually really have to pay attention to potentially some uh, adverse effects of having a suboptimal TSH, even if it's, um, and again, we'll talk about normal ranges, but even if it's not so high, um, but still suboptimal. Um, yeah, it's so funny because wait, as a weight loss doctor yeah. for 22 years, I have never bought into that. I've always been much mm -hmm. more aggressive about uh, TSH, which is, you know, for those of you who don't know, it's kind of like the thyroid has a feedback loop and the TSH is produced by the brain and triggers the release of thyroid hormone. So if thyroid hormone is low, TSH is high. So that's what we're talking about. You don't want a high TSH. Normally you want high of everything. Well, not blood pressure, but um, it's, it's funny that the medical community, even 10, like I would, you know, have a very low threshold for, because people come to me because they're struggling with their weight and I listen to them. And when they say they're doing everything right, I believe them to some extent. I mean, people are always doing a little something they can be tweaked, but for a lot of people, I think, um, it, but it's so interesting that you say unique set points. So, I mean, I think one of the things we should talk about, too, is just um, 
when to ask your doctor to get tested for antibodies, because for me, it's surprising how little that's done. And for me, that has other repercussions in terms of dietary choices. So I think, right, anybody with a family history of autoimmune disease, certainly a family history of Hashimoto. So anybody with things like Crohn's disease or celiac disease, or there's a lot of overlap between these things. So it is important to kind of, if you have a family history of autoimmune disease or thyroid disease, to ask your doctor about those antibodies, which can diagnose Hashimoto's because then that puts you on a different monitoring track. Wouldn't, wouldn't you say? I, yes, absolutely. And I think that, um, oh, there's so many points of what you said that I want to address, uh, but um, absolutely, because, you know, one of the ways in a sort of more conventional thinking is that, okay, well, if the antibodies are high, there's nothing we can do. And we'll just essentially wait for that thyroid gland to get destroyed before we put you on thyroid hormone. Um, and and, and that, that that's kind of the end of the treatment. And there's so much more that can be done. Um, at the same time, I also want to preface the fact that um, it's it's not something that we can simply, it's not a process that we can so simply reverse or stop by providing the right supplements and making the right dietary choices. But I definitely would like to talk about some trends that we've seen in the studies in terms of what nutrients can potentially support uh, the thyroid gland and what we have seen and what might actually be able to enhance. And I have seen changes in thyroid antibodies in response to certain lifestyle and nutrition interventions. So um, I think, and this is definitely something that's been documented in the literature as well. So I think it's important to note that um, there is a lot more that we can do than simply manage the destroyed thyroid gland with thyroid hormone. That's of course an, an important component of the treatment. Um, and I think that oftentimes when I talk to people about it, there's a sense of empowerment. There's a sense of agency of, I can do something to impact my condition. And so, and the earlier we're able to detect it, the earlier we can potentially start some of these interventions. So I absolutely agree with you. We see this running in families. So there's a genetic component for autoimmune thyroiditis. Um, and, and so what I always tell people, you know, we can't genetically re-engineer you at this point, but there are many environmental um, uh, components that we can actually control. Um, then there's the dietary component. And I like that you mentioned celiac because there's evidence that there's a higher likelihood of celiac in people who have Hashimoto's thyroiditis. But there's also non-celiac gluten sensitivity that's present at a higher rate in people with Hashimoto's thyroiditis. And we can get into kind of the more details of gut health and, and, and that whole area and how potentially gut health and intestinal hyperpermeability, so known as leaky gut, can lead to activation of the immune system at the level of the gut, which by the way, 70% of our immune system is at the level of the gut. We have leaky gut, intestinal hyperpermeability. Uh, we start getting that immune system activated and that's sending off inflammatory signals or cytokines throughout our body. So if somebody is already predisposed to developing an autoimmune condition, this is certainly one of the factors that can move them in that direction. Then we also have certain nutrient deficiencies. We know that vitamin D interacts with our immune system and helps to regulate our T regulatory cells, which are part of our immune system that may kind of, in a very simple way, um, calm down the immune response. And so we've seen that vitamin D levels in a number of autoimmune conditions um, correlate with those conditions. Low vitamin D levels, unfavorably so, and higher vitamin D levels 
um, correlate with improvement. And so we really kind of have to take um, this step back and say, okay, well, what are all of the different components that can contribute? And then which are the ones that we can modify and, and what can we change? And I think it starts with first assessing somebody's risk. Um, and then assessing whether it's through symptoms or through high risk and lab work, assessing if, if, if there's somebody who, you know, may need an intervention. Yeah, no, I love everything that you said. So let's, let's back up and because I, I, I think it's really important. One of the things that you said early on really jumped out at me. Like there are some experts on, line and on Instagram and things like that, that, you know, tell people that you can completely cure autoimmune thyroiditis and autoimmune disease in general by just making better lifestyle choices and taking a number of supplements. And, and I like what you're saying is that you can't do that completely. You can't always do that. You can certainly quiet it. You can slow the, the progression. It's different in different people because there's different, you know, potential etiologies. So let's talk, let's, let's really try to hammer home the best things, no matter where people are in their thyroid journey. Like vitamin D is a great point and, and its role in the immune system. And, and just, you know, I think people, it always drives me crazy when people say something is boosting your immune system because that's actually what an autoimmune disease is. You don't want it boosted. You want it at just the right level, you know? So it's regulating exactly. carefully. If it's too high, bring it down. If it's too low, bring it up. So, um, but what are some other things? Cause I know there's a lot in diet and supplements and that's my passion. And I think most of my listeners, that's where, you know, we all try to go. So what else can people do? Yeah, so there's a, a, a large component of stress, right? And how stress affects our um, hypothalamic pituitary adrenal axis, which is essentially one of the pathways by which our body physiologically responds to stress by, for instance, producing cortisol. Um, and, um, uh, and so, and we know that again, this goes across the board with multiple autoimmune conditions. Um, they can flare up at times of stress. Um, and, Again, with a number of different, whether it's lupus, whether it's other, we see that there's that correlation. And so similarly for autoimmune thyroiditis, a big kind of portion of the counseling that I do with patients and that education around this autoimmune condition is that uh, we have to, we're not going to eradicate stress, right? Like that's not happening, but we have to be able to put in place some practices that are going to um, affect how we respond to stress, right? So while Maybe there are some things in our environment that we can make, make certain conscious choices to avoid certain stressors, but ultimately it's about how our body responds to stress. And I know that a while ago there was an interesting TED talk that, that discussed evidence around how we respond to stress actually affects our risk of cardiovascular disease. Like there's a good response to stress that's actually activating. And then there's a bad response to stress that in fact increases our mortality rate and our cardiovascular disease. And so this is what I tell patients, you know, one, one simple example might be, um, you know, uh, you go and exercise, that's going to increase your stress levels, but it's also going to have a number of other benefits. And then that, and then the, the cortisol jump, let's say that we see the stress hormone jump that we see with exercise, that's going to nicely come down. But if we're talking about chronic low grade stress and this kind of, um, less healthy lifestyle, less healthy stress coping choices, um, 
we're, we're going to see those negative effects of that, whether it's on the cardiovascular system, whether it's on our immune system. So that's really one big component of the mind-body modality of how do we, and there are a number of different ways in which we can address that, whether it's through breathing exercises. One of my favorites is the 478 breath that I learned from Dr. Andrew Weil when I, even before actually I started my integrative medicine fellowship training, but there can also be many guided meditations, transcendental meditation, mindfulness-based stress reduction by John Kabat-Zinn. And what I tell people, there could be walking meditations, or we talked about dancing. I shared with you before we started, dancing is my meditation. There are many different ways to engage in um, stress-reducing habits, and it doesn't have to be, again, one size fits all. It's very much about exploring and finding out, you know, what is it that works for me that I'm going to be consistent with and that I'm going to um, really be able to change my physiology with ultimately. So what about other nutrients? Like, um, I know there's a lot, what, what do you, what do you have? I know this is all personalized, but, um, are there other foods and nutrients that we should be paying attention to? A hundred percent. Yes. So I actually have, um, there's an article on my website about nutrients to support the thyroid gland. So that's, that's one resource that people can go to. Um, okay. so besides vitamin D, which I generally recommend a level between 50 and 80. And by the way, I will say, with vitamin D, it's really important to, to measure the level. There's no empiric way to dose it really, even though some guidelines suggest so. I find that in my patient population and even in myself, like we're all different, um, depending on what type of supplement you're taking, um, how well your absorption is. Vitamin D is a fat soluble vitamin, right? So it just depends on, um, whether are there any digestive issues that might prevent you from optimally absorbing fats and fat soluble vitamins. Um, but then the other pieces too, what is your sun exposure and so forth? So well, there's um, so a strong really genetic component. Yeah, there's a, I'm actually exactly. developing an algorithm for that. So genetics, BMI, your zip code, your skin tone. I mean, there's so many factors that uh, gut I hadn't thought of, but that's a good one. I'm gonna have to add that to, I don't know how you would assess that, but no, I love that. So we definitely, measuring is very important and there's a genetic component. There is a certain genetic exactly. risk variant when combined, you need double the amount no matter what any of those answers are. So I, I love that. Definitely personalization is key. So sorry to interrupt. What are the other nutrients? Yes, hold on. Selenium. Selenium is a huge one. And you know what's really interesting? Um, there are some studies suggesting that only in the setting of selenium deficiency can you actually um the selenium supplementation actually change um, the level of autoimmunity against the thyroid gland. But empirically, some endocrinologists that I um, collaborate with or that I've heard speak at conferences. Empirically, it's something that's very often um, recommended as a supplement. And in part, because, and you would know better uh, about this since you specialize in, in nutrition medicine, but, um, you know, we're dealing with a lot of, um, you know, selenium depleted soil. And, and so our food has a different quality than it did, um, you know, decades ago and, and so on. Uh, but one of the really most reliable sources of selenium are Brazil nuts. And yeah. so I generally recommend uh, two Brazil nuts a day. They're actually quite high in selenium. So, uh, but otherwise, you know, people can also take a, um, a, usually in a multivitamin, there may not be enough of selenium. So I usually just um, gauge based upon their levels as well as then how, how much more do we want to, uh, do we want to supplement them? Uh, but that's a big one. And selenium has been shown, like I mentioned, especially people who are deficient to reduce that autoimmune response against the thyroid gland and it acts as an antioxidant. So this is a very important one. The other one that's um, 
that's controversial because it's really a double-edged sword is iodine. Too much iodine is not good. Too little iodine is not good. Um, and so what I typically do, and there's and the problem with iodine too, and with some of the nutrient testing, as you know, um, some of these are less reliable modalities to measure nutrients and they can vary from day to day. And so sometimes multiple data points are more helpful so that you can really establish is this person always sitting at this level. Uh, but what I typically do is I'll check urine iodine. Um, and we know that in population studies, this is what's used to determine whether a population is iodine deficient based on what they where they live and, and what their sources are. Um, and so I'll typically use urine iodine and um, and I'll generally recommend, again, because in Hashimoto's, too high quantities of iodine are also not recommended. Although, not to open a can of worms, but I actually did a deep dive a few years ago on the use of high doses of iodine in Hashimoto's and certain autoimmune conditions. And there apparently were some benefits at that time. And so it's, it's, it's very controversial, but we don't, we certainly do not use, uh, at this time, those high doses. Uh, but typically for a non-pregnant uh, person, it's 150 micrograms per day is the recommended daily allowance. Um, in pregnancy, that's a little bit higher, so it's always important to supplement accordingly. Um, and um, and then some of the sources are like iodized table salt, um, uh, you know, eggs, um, certain breads, although we may want to be avoiding breads during, um, you know, in Hashimoto's and so on. Uh, but that's another important one because, and why it's important is because your thyroid hormones actually have iodine atoms on them. So the two major thyroid hormones that are involved in in activity or exertion of the thyroid function are T4, which is thyroxine, and that has four iodine atoms. And then the other one, triiodothyronine, has three iodine atoms. And so um, we simply need it because that's part of that's that's part of the um, the actual composition of the thyroid hormone. But again, let's let's just emphasize that you can get too much of a good thing. And I know a yes. lot of people actually who don't necessarily have Hashimoto's, but take high doses of uh, iodine to try to amp up their metabolism. And that is not good. That can actually do damage that can downregulate your thyroid. Is that correct? Yes, I do yeah. not recommend it. Yes, I do not recommend high doses. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And seaweed, seaweed's a good um, one too. Like seaweed snacks, right? Isn't that a good source? Exactly. Or is like seaweed, food? Yes. Yeah. Yes, seaweed is a good one. The only thing is that because some of the, my understanding is that the type of seaweed and and the amount some of them can actually be quite high in iodine. Yeah. So it's probably not something I would recommend every day, but it is a very rich source of iodine. Absolutely. Um, I remember at one point my son was eating so many of those seaweed <laughs> snacks and I thought maybe I need to measure his level just to make sure he's okay. Um, That's funny. But um, yeah, yeah. And then iron, you know, we talked about iron in the context of iron deficiency and fatigue, but iron is actually also very important um, in terms of thyroid function. And there's been some correlation between iron deficiency um, and hypothyroidism as well. Um, and so obviously from, you know, animal-based foods, we can get iron, but also eggs, beans, lentils, tofu, um, or again, a high quality iron supplement in case it's difficult to keep up with the losses um, just by uh, by consuming food. Yeah. And, and another and thing a lot of doctors don't know, I actually read a study that low ferritin levels can actually impair the function of thyroid hormone. So if you are taking thyroid replacement and your ferritin, which is a storage form of iron is low, your thyroid hormone is not 
working the replacement adequately. I just had a patient come in and her doctor was like, well, you're not anemic. And her ferritin was two and she could barely get out of bed. And I was like, oh my God, what is happening with this? I mean, that's why you cannot, you have to be your own advocate, but hopefully it's podcasts like this that educate people. So we only have a little bit of time left, but I want to talk a little bit about gluten because I think, you know, everybody and their dog, and this is kind of maybe one of my only, one of my biggest challenges with the functional medicine world, as I've, I've spoken to you about it in in the past, is the complete elimination of gluten uh, across the board for everybody. I mm-hmm. am confident that in Hashimoto's, I always, for most of my patients, if they come in and they're struggling with weight, I tell them to try three weeks off gluten and see how they feel or if their weight loss responds. And if nothing changes, I say, ah, you're probably not. If you don't feel any different and there's no change in the scale, say you probably don't have what you describe as non-celiac gluten sensitivity, which is not as bad as celiac disease, which can actually damage your intestines, but is still symptomatic and 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 a lot more common. So tell me your take on gluten. Yes. So basically, um, you know, in terms of the studies that we have available, there was one, and, and again, unfortunately, with a lot, as you know, with a lot of nutrition studies and a lot of supplement studies, there's not a lot of funding and interest in doing these. So a lot of them are small, not very long term and limited in what we can deduce from them. Um, but there was a study where they looked at gluten elimination in women with Hashimoto's and they found that after six months, on average, there was a significant reduction in thyroid antibodies. Uh, there was another study looking at actually an even stricter um, uh, uh, kind of diet called the autoimmune protocol, where you not only remove grains, but also legumes and so forth. Um, it was it was a much, much smaller study. They saw some trends toward reduction of certain um, uh, uh, inflammatory markers like CRP, C-reactive protein, but they didn't really see any statistical significance. And part of that might have been the duration and the small size of the study. We don't really know, or maybe it really didn't make a difference. Um, so one of the things that we know, so it's, you know, bottom line, we have very limited data on this. Um, that being said, um, you know, when we look at in one of the tests that I use in my practice, um, it are, uh, are these, um, comprehensive stool tests. And one of the things that we can deduce, um, from these tests is whether there's a high likelihood of intestinal permeability. So one of the markers that we can get from this stool test is called zonulin. Um, and that marker is actually also, was, there was um, there was another lab that actually started um, doing this test in blood um, in collaboration with the research done by Dr. Alessio Fasano, who you might be familiar with. He's done a lot of research on zonulin, intestinal hyperpermeability, gluten, and so forth, right? So um, so I'm using these tests to, to let me know, okay, physiologically, am I seeing increase in zonulin? Because what this marker does um, is it actually um, disrupts the tight junctions that keep our um, intestinal lining together. Um, and by increasing that intestinal permeability, it can potentially cause certain food sensitivities. And like I said, that, infl- that, that activation of the immune system. So part of what I do is I use some of these markers um, and I agree with you, absolutely utilizing, you know, symptoms. Um, are your symptoms better? Um, are you feeling, um, uh, uh, you know, that you have more energy levels, less joint aches, or sometimes, again, some other sometimes vague symptoms that can occur as a result of um, either gluten sensitivity or potentially um, Hashimoto's. 
Um, and then we also follow antibodies. And I agree with you. If we're not seeing any signs of intestinal permeability, if there's no change in symptoms, if there's no change in antibodies, and the person is overall following a healthy diet and the gluten sources are not like pro super processed all the time, uh, then there's no reason to completely eliminate it all the time. And one thing that I say to my patients that I think is so important to mention if you do any kind of elimination diet, it's so important to have a plan for food reintroduction because, again, because of the circumstances and the, and the gut ecosystem, which might be, you know, dependent on the microbiome and what you're eating and the inflammation, there may be times that a person might be sensitive to a number of different foods, but that's really not a, that's, that's really just a function of leaky gut and it's really just a function of that inflammation. And as we repair that, they might be able to tolerate those foods again. So I always encourage people, let's have a systematic reintroduction um, because there can also be um, side effects from not reintroducing these foods or introducing them too far down the road. Um, and then people might actually end up really not tolerating them anymore because their body hasn't seen them in so long. Yeah, and potential nutrient deficiencies from eliminating major food groups across exactly. the board long term. So I think that's really, really important. I think that's a whole nother podcast, leaky gut. Um, that's it's so yeah. important, but it's beyond the scope of so where can they obviously this is something you're very passionate about. It's personal. Where can they go to learn more about you, to learn more about your work with the what's the website where with the paper that you mentioned and, and just where, you know, any any we want to learn more about everything that you do. Absolutely. Yes. So they can go to drboyana.com. So that's drboyana.com. Uh, and I do have some articles on uh, the nutrients that are important uh, for the thyroid gland function and Hashimoto's in particular with the references as well. So for people who like to do a little bit of a deeper dive, we have that as well. And then I know we didn't really get a chance to talk about thyroid testing, but I do have an article of, you know, like the one-on-one -on, -one on thyroid function testing, which I think um, is a relevant um, topic as well. And then if anybody is um, interested in having a consultation, my contact information is on the website as well. And do you do virtual consultations too? I do, yes. I do oh, wonderful. Okay. So drboyana.com, B-D-R-B-O-J-A-N-A.com. Um, wonderful. Right. Well, this has been wonderful, as I expected, your wealth of knowledge, and I love it. I like to end the podcast with your most practical tip for staying healthy, whether it's stress management, something that you do food related exercise, give us your most practical tip that keeps you ticking and looking and feeling as great as you do. So you know what, at the foundation of health to me is sleep. I think that you know, if we don't get good sleep, adequate sleep for what our body needs, um, the mental clarity isn't there. As you know, our, our leptin and ghrelin hormones go out of balance, our satiety and hunger hormones. Um, there's obviously could be a lot of fatigue. Um, our immune system is not as efficient. So really for me, sleep is uh, the foundation because then it makes everything else so much easier. Um, so I would say like, that is the one thing, like regulate your sleep, plan for your sleep, sleep hygiene, that's that's the number one. Without it, I think the rest of the elements are harder to follow. 
Yeah, that's the one place where I fall short. So I have to overcompensate with everything else. But anyways, all right. It's been a pleasure catching up with you. And I hope to have you back again. Uh, It's always wonderful to talk with like-minded people. I really hope that you found the information in this podcast helpful. I know I did. And I welcome your feedback because I'm doing this for you. So if there's topics that you want to learn about, something that you want to learn more about, if there's something that you want to explain further that I've talked about, please let me know. Comment on my Instagram page. Send me an email, melina at drmelina.com. And definitely hit that subscribe button because I'm going to have great new content every single week and I don't want you to miss an episode. That's it for now. Stay practically healthy.